across the margins. Across the margins. Podcast. Welcome to Across the Margin, the podcast, where we take you beyond the margin, behind the scenes of the online magazine, and deeper into the stories. I am your host, Michael Shields, and I am pretty excited about today's episode, as to me it embodies what um, what this podcast is all about, and, and, and that is uh, taking what can be found at the arts and culture online magazine Across the Margin and, and pulling it off the page, so to speak, and, and, and bringing it to life here. Um, so that is exactly what's going to go down in this episode, which features an interview with Christian Needon, a writer and editor who just completed an eight-part series at Across the Margin that features a slew of interviews he conducted with important filmmakers and Hollywood insiders and cult figures. And And I found what Christian was doing um, in these interviews and, and when I learned more about him and his film expertise so compelling that... Uh, Immediately, uh, I, I needed to have him on and, and talk about it. So, um, Christian, it, it, there's no other way to look at it. He, he is a true film historian. He's, a, he's, as you'll see in this podcast, this episode, he's a human encyclopedia brimming with information about film and filmmakers. He's, he's literally interviewed hundreds of influential filmmakers and storytellers, and in this episode, we discuss at length all the subjects of his interview series at Across the Margin. But but beyond that, we talk a lot about film locations, um, a whole bunch of obscure must-see films that he kind of puts me onto, and 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 you in turn, and and just much much more. It's a uh, it's this 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 episode's really custom made for anyone who loves film and and film culture, and it's packed with all sorts of fascinating tidbits and insights so it's a so it's a cool one especially for the film nerds out there two things before we dive into that interview one um you'll notice at one point in the interview we talk about jimmy cliff's um uh soundtrack for the film the harder they come so i i decided to kind of pepper this uh episode with some of the music from that um for no other reason besides it's awesome and uh, uh the second is just a reminder that we are part of the osiris podcasting network Head over to OsirisPod.com to uh, to see all the different podcasts they have available there. There's there's quite a amazing grouping of podcasts there. And the next episode we do actually will be another feature on Osiris Podcast, uh, the the music podcast they have to offer. So I am looking forward to that. That's coming um, coming out very soon as well. So let's get into it here. It's um, a journey into Hollywood then and now. Here is my interview. With Christian Needon. So, uh, hey, Christian, thank you, uh, thank you for not only being here today, but for uh, bringing this project to across the margin. The uh, this this interview series, it's I've I've enjoyed the whole thing. So, no, it sounds great. You're you're good to go. Um, thank you for being here and for the series. 
Hey, you're welcome, Michael. Thanks for having me on Beyond the Margin. Dude. Yes. Um, I'm thrilled to be a part of uh, Across the Margin. Yes. Yeah, no, it's, uh, I think I confuse people sometimes Beyond the Margin, uh, presented by Across the Margin. But let me, we have a lot to get to because we have these eight absolutely fascinating eccentric characters that uh, that you interviewed and then that we, you know, had pieces each week at Across the Margin for the last couple of months. But uh, let's start with you a little bit. Um, uh, you know, it's obvious that how much you love film and you're a film buff and, you know, you have such enough passion for it. When did that start? How long have you been um, fascinated by the art? It goes back to late childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, I grew up in, for the most part, in Jersey City, New Jersey. And when you were trying, we didn't really have, we didn't have HBO. We had cable, but we didn't have HBO. Mm-hmm. And so my access to movies was really on, there's a station called WPIX Channel 11. Yeah. And yeah. they would have afternoon showcases on Saturday afternoons or, or evenings of movies that were edited, mm-hmm. obviously, but that was the first time that I saw Predator. It's the yeah. first time I saw Apocalypse Now. Yep. It's the first time I saw Alien. It's the first time oh, I... WPIX pushing it out. Yeah, it, yeah, heavily heavily edited in, in retrospect, um, mm. but those were those. that was one part of it, like in terms of, of, of watching that stuff um, broadcast. Mm-hmm. Um, we also had uh, a local video rental place where I saw the majority of, of films that uh, I got exposed to early on, yeah. uh, probably before I was supposed to. Um, yeah. A lot of them rated R. I remember seeing, like, I think, uh, Lethal Weapon 2 when Definitely. I was, like, nine. I always say that, like, my parents were strict in a lot of ways. One thing they didn't care about for some reason was R-rated films at a very young age so I was exposed early on as well totally yeah yeah, yeah. And, and some and obscure ones too the, yeah. the, it was interesting the guy who ran our local uh, video rental place and this is before Blockbuster mm-hmm. was around there was mm-hmm. a Blockbuster in Hoboken that we would go to, to to rent stuff but that was the closest one so we went to this local one I miss, instead I miss perusing those aisles of those oh those, yeah oh my goodness but go on yeah he had an he had an interesting collection and stuff that he would promote so there was the stuff there that was in the section but then there would be, for lack of a better word, the the um, owner's picks. Okay. And one of the earliest ones I remember was Ralph Bakshi. Oh, wow. he, had, he had all of Ralph Bakshi's animated films, uh-huh. um, Wizards, uh, uh, Fritz the Cat, I think it yeah. was. Yeah. Heavy, yeah. Heavy Traffic. Yeah. Um, Coonskin. Yeah. Which, I mean, like, it's like all this stuff up there. And I remember seeing all of them and... At a young age, rent, r- renting those and being exposed to this guy, and fast forward years later, he kind of became a little bit of a white whale to me, trying to get him for an interview. I still oh, have did. never got him for yeah. an interview. Yeah. Um, subsequently, actually, if you ever get a chance, a couple of years ago, there was a collected book of mm-hmm. all his work. Oh, really? Stuff with the forward by oh, cool. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I never got a chance to interview him. But I, I'm a big fan of his his work as an outsider um, uh, animation guy. Yep, uh, yep. And taking that stuff. But obviously, yeah. the, the, probably even more famous than anything else is his uh, Lord of the Rings uh, uh, that he did, um, which is the big thing with with Bakshi was also the first exposure I had was rotoscoping mm-hmm, and the mm-hmm. idea of being able to. Uh, coming at it that way. The one of all his works, though, the, the one that I've seen the most is Fire and Ice. Okay. And growing up, I had, uh, I lived in a family that was big on board games, mm-hmm. but also big on reading and specifically fantasy literature. Oh, and cool. So Fire and Ice was a big, was was an interesting kind of thing that played into that. Um, my favorite movie as a kid was Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. And yeah. I 
looking back on it, I think it was. It's interesting. There's not a lot of dialogue in yeah. it, but just the way the music mm-hmm. um, and the composition of it that it was operatic. Yeah. The way yeah. the way that John John Milius um, designed that film mm-hmm. um, is why I think it still holds up. There's yep. been so many dog shit rap, ripoffs of <laughs> yeah. it, and, yeah. um, the, like much like the Italian Mad Max ripoffs that happened mm-hmm. throughout the '80s. But it's one that's always stuck with me, and I've I've always really really enjoyed um, its use its comp- its uh, of, of actual locations yeah. what it turns out is southern Spain yeah, yeah. for the most part uh, and yeah. I, it, it's just uh, and that was one of the early things without my really realizing it um, an appreciation for, for locations there's, yeah. there's a specific shot in the opening of, of Coney and the Barbarian where there's a guy that's known as the scout this, this guy who looks like a Celtic mm-hmm. warrior guy and he comes in there's these snowy trees mm-hmm. and he comes up to this rock and young Conan is looking up at him, and it's this this like really memorable shot of these this dappled light through these trees of this just savage guy just looking, and he has no idea what's about to happen to him and his his people mm-hmm. and stuff. But it's it's almost like a some sort of um, Frank Frazetta painting, yeah. and obviously Frazetta played a played a large part in a lot of inspiration for many authors, many filmmakers, specifically that for that film mm-hmm. as well. Um, the Conan books, obviously, a lot of those, uh, a lot of the um, covers have been have utilized his artwork, um, and I've I've really had a lot of respect for not just not just writers but also artists mm-hmm. who have evoked lands and worlds yeah. that yeah. are wholly wholly um, made you know cut cut from their own imaginations, mm-hmm. and I think I have a lot of respect for that, and it's really. It's really influenced who I've gone after subsequently for interviews, yeah. whether it was for Camera in the Sun, mm-hmm. whether it was for my work with Nomadic Press, whether it was for freelance work for publications like At Large Magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm, I like um, creatives who are not just great storytellers, but can create worlds. Yeah. And that's something I think that uh, audiences appreciate, too. Definitely. And, and uh, so, yeah, that was that was my early my early. Um, influences mm-hmm. influences there. Um, I didn't grow up going to the movies too much until again my teenage years. Mm-hmm. Uh, for people living in the New York City area, um, there's a if you go across Jersey City, there's the Newport Center Mall yeah. that had uh, its 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 multiplex cinema. Mm-hmm. So there was always uh, a lot at the same time going on over there um, in terms of movies that I could go and see. And and I remember. Um, Going during the summertime, especially before I was doing any kind of summer work. I mean, that was that was you know in, yeah. the, in the early to mid nineties. Seen a lot of films over there. And I always romanticized tucking into a movie theater during the summer, like a dark, cold movie theater. So it's let it's, me tell you that air conditioning oh, on, on a New York City humid July yes, yeah. is 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 heaven. It's, you know, where it doesn't matter how how terrible the film is. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they would they would be great. Yeah. But I think the thing that really influenced me more more than anything else was the small screen stuff mm-hmm. to the big screen. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly don't care too much about about the experience of seeing something on the big screen I care okay. more about the story yeah yeah um, and I was fine because I grew up seeing stuff on television so mm-hmm. stuff like that and that's why the transition to seeing stuff on smartphones even if it's you know um, 
the horizon setting is fine for me. Oh, it, it, it doesn't bother you. Yeah, I know. No, yeah. I've, I don't. I've, I care more about the writing on it. You know, I'm, I'm, yep. I'm happy watching Game of Thrones on, on Netflix yeah. uh, on my, my smartphone, yep. even though I could watch it on... I have, I, have a, I have a flat screen, which I've which I if I have the chance to, I'll yeah, watch it on that. But, Optimum. But the but the way that's... the, the That show particularly, um, the last couple of years, the way it's structured, even if it wasn't a fantasy same, yeah. it's just the, the writing, the, the the amount of money that goes into it, obviously. Definitely. But the location work... Well, I, I mean, I always talk about with, with my... Um, affinity for game of thrones is you know a lot of people always talk about the big scenes i just love the dialogue scenes a lot like Tyrion's talking to his brother or like Tyrion's talking to you know uh you know anyone it's just the dialogue just that that's yeah. that's what does it for me there it's and the rapport between the the characters on a familial yeah. level i yeah. mean that's a, that show is is fascinating because it's a story of 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 family and relationships yep. and and um and grudges and yeah. and and broken love and mm-hmm. and the idea of and a fascinating character on, on Game of Thrones, real quick for me, is Cersei. Just okay. because there there is there are times where you see you flash back to her childhood mm-hmm. before she's married to the king, and you say and there's there's the I think in season one there's there's the the conversation between the two of them where she asks if you ever loved me, yeah, and yeah. where she's this character who's beyond all of her evil deeds. There mm-hmm. there is that flash in her life of of looking for a moment of of a true. A true love, a true true acceptance that she was not getting as a woman who was just wait, waiting to get married yeah. off. You know, yeah. this was like, oh, maybe I'll, I'll luck out yeah. to have a, a loving relationship that obviously doesn't. That's what doesn't the show go. does such a good. Uh, uh, you know, it's so good at drawing sympathy from people that you normally would think are just beyond sympathy and, and, and you know beyond our compassion in any way. And it happens again and again, and I, yeah. I think that's the the triumph of of. Writing of, yeah. and being allowed to uh, let those characters breathe in um, in a longer story arc of a series. Yeah. Uh, something. Um, one of the, the interviews that I did for Cameron in the Sun was with a guy named Joshua Sinclair, mm-hmm. who was the writer of a series, a mini series called Shaka Zulu that okay. I saw when I was a kid. It was very left a big imprint on me. Oh, really? I saw it on Fox. Yeah, I'm not familiar. Yeah. Yeah. So the story with it was. Uh, the first year af- after Rupert Murdoch uh, acquired uh, Fox, um, the the most valuable um, of the stations that came under that banner was WNYW, I believe it is, mm-hmm. the, Fo- the New York City uh, Fox station. And at that time in the late 80s, um, he, he's, he knew he was going in, there was an uphill battle to, to expand the big three networks to the big four. And how do you draw those eyes? How do you draw the, yeah. the attention of that stuff? Mm-hmm. And one of, the early, yeah. one of the early one of the early tries was um, going for event series, miniseries um, that were in syndication. And a little under a year after the acquisition, they, they aired a five-night um, miniseries event called Shaka Zulu, which was a South, South African Produced, and this is during the the, the cultural embargo mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, miniseries uh, of uh, about the early 19th century Zulu uh, chief Shaka, yeah, um, and that had been wildly successful in that country, and subsequently aired over five nights to very high reviews, or sorry, very very high uh, ratings yeah. and very good reviews. But it's interesting watching. Uh, you go back and read the, the New York Times review of it, it, it. The guy who's reviewing it even leads off saying, "Seemingly out of nowhere, mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. this amazing series comes." 
and it was you know it was it was part of these different uh, chances that Fox was taking on programming to yeah. to get people there. And yeah. it's, there's a lot of and Shaka Zulu. One of the things that's the reason it stands out is that there's a lot of violence mm-hmm. and um, but very uh, very um, in, intriguing kind of mix of history and mythology. Mm-hmm. That, that really draws you in. And I remember seeing it multiple times. I saw it during the first run when I was a little kid, yeah. and it was rebroadcast a couple, a couple yeah, of years you've, later. Yeah, you've revisited since. And Absolutely. Still, yeah. And it stuck with me. Out. Oh, it's yeah. worth it. I, yeah. I recommend anybody yeah. checking it out. It's on Netflix now. Okay. It was, oh, it re- it, it was remastered, and now it's on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It's well worth it. And it reminded me of Game of Thrones because of the, the, the mythological elements to it, but also at... Part it's the story of of Shaka's rise to power and how he essentially fucks it up. Yeah, yeah. And um, in so the midst of the way. rise of of English colonialism mm. at that same time uh. in that part of Africa, and but one of the undoings of it is the complications of family. Yeah, and yeah. that includes being undermined actively or or playing to to his ego and to his own failings mm. of character. And but it's a story that was allowed to breathe over ten hours. Yeah. And it stuck with me, and I reached out. I've, I, at the time, uh, when I was doing these interviews, I had an IMD Pro account. Mm-hmm. And if anyone's ever had that, it's a, it's very useful to an independent blogger like yeah. me because what you can do is contact you get contact info. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you never know what you're going to get. Yeah. Sometimes it's an agent. Sometimes it's a direct email to yeah. the, to the filmmaker. Right to the person. Yeah. Totally. You can end up in someone's inbox real easy. Absolutely. Yeah. That's what happened with with the the writer of this series, oh, cool. uh, Joshua Sinclair, mm-hmm. who I reached out to, got back to me immediately. We did. Uh, he happened to be in town, and we did. We recorded an interview at the Plaza Hotel in oh, the wow. bar yeah. <laughs> downstairs. Really? And then yeah, we yeah. did. That was the initial one, and then I needed to fill in the gaps of some of the stuff I wanted to expand uh-huh. on it. So when he got back, he was living in Europe, um, and uh, we did a phone interview to fill cool. in those gaps. And it's became my most read interview. Oh, cool! My camera in the sun. Oh, nice. And he's one of the things about Joshua that, that, that came through. This is that my philosophy to doing interviews with people on, on camera in the sun was I wanted to. Um, make subjects comfortable enough that they were going to tell me things that they wanted to do anyway. Okay. That they wanted, I wanted them to feel comfortable enough yeah. to, once we got in a rhythm and a role that they, that we could, uh, just have a conversational, mm-hmm. uh, a conversation where they, they would, um, tell me things about their projects that, that no one really cared to ask about yeah. anyway. So I'm just going to tell you, this yeah, is, yeah. and that they became very, um, those were really productive interviews. Yeah, that's Josh cool. was I mean, just you, one of them. It's, it sounds like you're building some trust there and just allowing them to be. Yeah, and that's a big part of it, especially yeah. if you can score a face-to-face interview with a subject. Yeah. Um, you can do it by phone too, Definitely. where 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 like they they pick up very quickly how serious yep. you are and how much in, how much yeah. research you've done. I always I always stuff. think about like when I'm interviewing people, how the second half of a lot of interviews go. The first half, kind of, I could sense the person feeling me out a little bit, and then you get to this point where they kind of get it and. and understand your passion and then they just like you said open up and the whole thing and and what a joy is it that what we do with these interviews is like you know I could you could finish a film or like I finish a book and I just hit up the author and like I want to talk to this person I want to learn more about this and it's it's such a gift you know as as a journalist or someone who you know podcast or does anything tell me about camera in the sun though like I I really want to get into these subjects soon but Mm -hmm. so it was a 
uh, a film interview site that you ran from uh, 2010 to 2014. Am I right about that? That's right. Okay. What happened to it? Where is it? So, <laughs> I, uh, working uh, back to front, yes. uh, the ending was Burnout. Okay, sure. <laughs> Absolutely, I get it. Uh, the format is incredibly tiring. Yeah. Um, to do transcribed uh, interviews. That's is, what it was. It's a tough one, yeah. That's, that was basically my, my approach was I would uh, record an interview with, with the subject, and then when I first started it out, I would listen back to it and try to type it out in real time. Yeah. That quickly became really... Uh, Impra- unpractical. Impractical. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And um, so I ended up using a transcription service. Oh, cool. um, I tried to find the one with the best rate possible. Mm-hmm. So, But I, that's pretty much what it became, was me essentially paying to get this, paying my uh, myself essentially to sure. get these things up. And I, I had to, you know, I had a job at the time that allowed me to, to have a little bit of extra scratch to do that, yep. which was good. Um so what it became was I would get the transcript back from the transcription service, re-listen to the interview along to make sure, see if everything yeah. had been transcribed. Yeah. Almost invariably it wasn't. It's interesting mm-hmm. to see some of this transcription software, what they interpret certain words okay. and phrases for. Yeah. The funny thing, too, is like sometimes you'll have a phone call with someone where the, the connection is kind of dicey. Definitely. And so it's not the transcription services. It's but actually, of it doesn't yeah. come through quite clear. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that basically was the end of it. I, I just, I needed to do, I was... I was fine with the format, mm. but being the whole, doing everything myself, from running the site to promoting everything yeah. to trying to build an audience, maintain an audience, yeah, um, a- it became too much, uh, and I, I figured I wanted to evolve. I yeah. wanted to take, I knew that I, I had a skill and I, I had an audience mm-hmm. that was that was up for this, but I needed I needed collaborators. Yep. I needed to go under a it's banner. It's tough being a one person band. It, it is. It really is. But at the start, it seemed it was something that was that was actually really exhilarating. Yeah. You know, you you go into it, and uh, I started in 2010 as a, a side project. Uh, basically, I was working at a television production company mm-hmm. at the time, and I I had had they had up and down a, a blog that. Uh, had given me the idea. It was through. It was published via WordPress, and I saw how easy it was yeah. to build a site with this thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, I did a couple of, um, uh, you know, posts that, that were really, uh, including one about Ralph Bakshi. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were pretty good. And I did one um, about for this this TV production company on their blog that was about um, female action and horror directors, mm. and it was kind of a listicle about this uh, about. Uh, People, women who were working in film at that time. It was, it was the, um, I want to say it was 2009. I want to mm. say it was basically um, uh, the year of the Hurt Locker. Okay. And so I, uh, I got a chance to really, um, to really catch catch it at a moment where a female director was about was, to was win an Oscar yeah. and stuff. And, yeah. and that that film was still going through. Um, had, it was the year before the Oscar, actually. So it was like. It was still going through festival circuits mm-hmm. and otherwise. The reason there was buzz, though. A lot of buzz. A lot of buzz. Yeah. yeah. One of the reasons I, I mentioned that is that at it, I submitted it to IMDb and it got on the hit list oh. when they still had it at that time. Yeah. And that was the first time I had some kind of recognition, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. a lot of eyes on work that I had done. Nice. And that was like, wow, this is I, I can get used to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I started up uh, Camera in the Sun originally as uh, something I was I was figured out. I'll, I'll do... Uh, Every week I'll, I'll do a couple of uh, posts about 
different states. Mm-hmm. I, I wanted something. Here, here's I, I wanted an angle that no one was really touching, yeah. to, so I could stand out. And one of them I figured was film locations. Yeah. And uh, so after experimenting with some names, I, I came up with Camera in the Sun. Mm-hmm. I figured that I was gonna and locations under the lens was yeah. was the mantra okay. I was going locations going under. Locations under the lens, gotcha. Yeah. And uh, so I've, I I figured, uh, you know. Was younger, had a lot, lot more energy, and uh, hadn't actually dove into doing this yet. Mm-hmm. So I was like, oh, I'll do a couple of, of posts a week, just myself. I'll do a couple of posts about uh, uh, different states or different cities and yeah. different states and, and the films I've been there, and mm-hmm. then maybe I'll do an interview. Yep. You know? And uh, so I started out doing that, and uh, the first two that I did, I did one about Atlantic City and Hudson County mm-hmm. because they were the ones that were the closest to me that, yeah. that I knew I could, could do. Yeah. Uh, and uh, that was one week, and then the next week I did one about Gallup, New Mexico. Wait, and let me stop you there. What uh, what films are um, that in Atlantic City or that area? Atlantic City. On? So Atlantic City. This was right around the time board. It was that just was before say, yeah, Boardwalk, Boardwalk Empire yep. had debuted. Mm-hmm. They, I think the uh, the trailer had come out at the time in mm-hmm. 2010 that I had done this, and that was that was one. There was a uh, different different. Um, Films. There's one called the 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 King of Marvin Gardens. Mm. That it's a Jack Nicholson Jack Nicholson film. Oh, is it? It's one of his like lesser known ones yeah. from the seventies. I'm, I'm not even familiar. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think Bruce Dern is okay. his brother in really? it or something like that. Yeah, it's it's. That and, sounds like a must. I love Bruce. Yeah, yeah, he's. Oh, by the way, so Queen of Marvin Gardens. He, he the the film opens with uh, Jack Nicholson has his own radio program. You know what? Yeah, and oh, he's cool. he's like he's like reading some really boring essay that he had written. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's like a. NPR style show that's out there. Yeah, it's King, can you say the name again? I think it's called King of Marvin Gardens. Okay. Um, obviously, Atlantic City being the yeah. Monopoly town. Um, Hudson County is uh, an interesting one because around that time, you know, Hudson County obviously being encompassing not just Jersey City, but uh, Bayonne, yeah. um, uh, North Bergen, Hoboken, mm-hmm. um, and out into the Meadowlands, really. So there's, there's a lot that you can use there. Um, I think at the time, you know, the one that's closest to my heart is Sid and Nancy, mm. um, because that was filmed uh, the first summer, I believe, that I had moved over to Jersey City as a, as a young kid, or the summer before. Yeah. And basically, they used our our uh, my stepfather was was a priest, and they used that production used our gym as a storage for all oh. the costumes and stuff. Oh, and so cool. they would go in and film in Manhattan yeah. every day. Sure. And then the last scene in the film is along what is now. Uh, the the waterfront area there next to Newport, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, Gary Oldman goes goes over and just looks it looks like this this completely like you know, on, the way, on the way to Hoboken there that that, that exactly. right there yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah and yeah. they filmed right on there because it has all the broken piers and yeah. stuff and it had it had the the skyline of New York was Stunning right there over there yeah so Oldman goes in he has a slice of pizza he kicks over the the table comes mm-hmm. out there's kids dancing next to a burning car he dances with them for a second then he goes back out to the ro- road and Nancy pulls up in a cab they mm-hmm. get in the cab together and they drive uh, uh, down the road past all the old warehouses in, in Jersey City and that's yeah. the last couple of minutes of that film that, that are actually filmed in, in there and I've, I remember I saw that that film multiple times uh, on it's video and, the, yeah. and and uh, so that was the one that, that always stood out to me and when I started this project I was like yep I know yeah. one film that was yeah. filmed there but then other stuff I mean Liberty State Park was used for a bunch of stuff yeah. um, that shows up in Men in Black mm-hmm. um, is, is one of them and then um, 
Copland was uh, utilized oh, yeah. the area right across uh, the Fort Lee area. Yeah, that's um, yeah, the other shots under the bridge there. Yeah, right. So yeah. they call it Garrison, New Jersey. I yep. think is, is yep. the town that, uh, that they, they they quote there. Harrison is mm-hmm. obviously in mm-hmm. Hudson County, just below the bridge and stuff. So that was used, and then obviously the Sopranos yep. um, uh, used extensive Absolutely. stuff all around the North Jersey area. Then so. uh, you were mentioning you went to New Mexico after that. And that's one of the locations. Where I, was it? I so there was they do a lot of I, filming out there. Yeah. What I tried to do was find two cities yeah. in each state. That would, that would to kind of give an um, uh, different different aspects yep. of a state, and so yeah, I, so there's one there's Gallup, New okay. Mexico, and there's Las Vegas, New yeah, Mexico. Yeah, 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 definitely. And Las Vegas, I believe, is the one uh, that con- No Country for Old Men utilizes. Oh, okay, and there's a the God, the, uh, the the scene where. Um, Josh Brolin has uh, is in the hotel and he's yeah. trying to figure out how how people keep finding him and yep. he opens up the money bag and there's mm-hmm. a tracker yep. in there, and then there's the shootout with him and Segura, um, and so it's 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 interesting um, to see like that um, that interesting architecture. In, in New Mexico yeah. that's not necessarily the desert but yep. it's like what happens when you're getting into the towns what can mm-hmm. you use and obviously this was a time when um, Breaking Bad really came to Albert symbolize yeah. New Mexico yeah, uh, yeah. filming there yeah. but there but there is something there's interesting about Las Vegas is that they do promote the, and a lot of these states have film commissions yep. where they try to Bring prom- promote in. Yeah, come here and do that everything, yeah. and Las Vegas is a big one Gallup yep. is another one um, yeah, and and those, in the south Berlin they go yeah, that yeah. small town there they have a downtown area where it's like it's just kind of almost empty at this point and that's all they use it for, you know. It's a, and it's, it's great to run downtown. It's yeah, they they need it. Some of these towns really need it too. Well, that's it's interesting. You say like it's this bleak, almost like apocalyptic thing. Yeah. I mean, there's like um, I think one of one of the one Red Dawn was yeah. was in one of those cities. I forget mm-hmm. which one it was, but I mean, it's the interesting. To initial be real exactly. Red Dawn. The, the real <laughs> the, again <laughs> another John Milius film. Yeah. I, I, that film means. I, I like I like John Milius's films. I don't like his politics. Oh, yeah, I'm yeah. not the first person to say that. Yeah, sure. Um, but he's. Um, we can divide those two. But exactly. But mm-hmm. it, it was it was interesting. His approach. I saw an, a documentary about him. Oh um, yeah. And uh, a couple years ago, and I, I think that was the first time it was revealed he had a stroke a couple oh, years okay. ago. That's the reason he doesn't make films anymore. Yeah. Um, but it was really fascinating because I'd seen a couple of uh, making up documentaries about uh, where he was like, there's famously he's in the one for uh, Apocalypse Now's uh, mm-hmm. one that was, uh, uh, what was it? Uh, Hearts of Darkness. Oh, yeah. That was made yeah. by Francis Ford Coppola's yeah. wife. And they're talking about, if, if you ever get a chance to see it, it's really, it's a great documentary because they, they're talking about uh, the conceiving of where they're going to film or how they're going to film um, Apocalypse Now. And the original plan. It wasn't very realistic at all. Was uh, they were actually going to go to Vietnam in the closing days of the oh, war yeah. and basically do it as like uh, following around different platoons yeah. on location there. That's very aggressive. I know. And, and Milius is saying like we probably like we calculated might might lose some folks and yeah. it'd be worth it for the film. And then they cut they cut over to George Lucas. Yeah. It was like yeah. And you know who was going to go over there? Me. Me. Yeah. I was going to yep. do all this. Yeah. I hear Hearts of Darkness is outstanding. I hear it's, it's great. Like, really remarkable to see the behind the scenes. Uh, planning and plotting of that whole thing like, it's like, it's worth it for that for the footage the behind the scenes stuff yeah. but just as valuable is going is is her going back to interview the first of all having the access to yeah. but also these these folks getting them at the right time where it was still close enough to have the memories yeah and the um and having an emotional connection so that as they're recalling them to be 
angry or funny yeah. or, or regretful. Yeah. I mean, that was like if you, you're talking about Martin Sheen about having a heart attack on, on the, the set and having to shut down production for it. Mm-hmm. And talking about, you know, that scene where he's completely drunk and, and busting the windows in his, or busting the mirror in his room yeah. and, and actually bleeding. And, and Coppola is saying, use it. Use yeah. it. <laughs> just hating his director and that kind of stuff. And I think that's part of any interview that you do, especially with filmmakers. The problem, it's, it's a challenge. Years later, especially the older they get, you yeah. want to get them as soon as possible yeah. because... Memories fade, I, memories change, passions change, the whole thing. Exactly. Right. You want to capture that moment. That's... um. Uh, you got to dig into some of these subjects that were the thing. And before I do that, like you've mentioned, I mean, there's already already I'm walking away just from these 20 minutes we've been talking with like some films I need to see. Sure. That's what these interviews uh, also did to me. They opened up, um, you know, they 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 introduced me to different films and things. I just really, and I started watching. I didn't know we're going to talk about uh, a boy and his dog right here in a minute. Uh, that's a film I love now, and and um, also you seem to focus in on. On, especially in this series of interviews on, on some filmmakers who kind of would fly under the radar to a lot of people and it, it's, it's, it's so cool and that's why I, like, I love this series so much it's so cool to be able to tell their stories I'm sure that meant a lot to you but totally yeah. you know, it's interesting too a lead into that was the transition away from, from essays into interviews that I did with Cameron in the Sun mm-hmm. and I realized very quickly that as that even doing little essays weren't going to stand out as much as doing interviews with people. Yeah. And one of the last essays that I did uh, was with an eye toward doing an interview. Mm-hmm. And it's, it, it was called, the, the name of the essay was Guns and Reggae in 70s Kingston, Jamaica. <laughs> yes. And it was about films in Kingston uh-huh. in the 70s. Uh-huh. The most famous being uh, The Harder They Come, okay. starring Jimmy Cliff. Which is probably the most famous film to come out of, yeah. of Jamaica. Um, he also did the soundtrack; as one of the best uh, film soundtracks ever. Um, and the reason I, I did that was because I wanted something on the site so that I could pitch the author of a book, which I had read several times, who I wanted to interview about that time. Her name's Lori Guns, mm-hmm. and Lori had um, written a book called "Born for Dead: a, jo- a Journey Through the Jamaican Posse Underground." It's a 1995 book, and it's it's um, a combination of a history of Jamaica with her own interactions, recollections of uh, her time with Jamaican gang members during the 1970s and into the 80s. Um, between there and New York, um, she was at Harvard, I believe, at the time that that, that uh, of, of this stuff, and was a graduate student, mm-hmm. I believe. Um, but she wrote this book in 1995, almost immediately, uh, was brought into litigation by the former prime minister, Edward Siaga for his depiction in that book mm. by the, by their family, oh, really? which, which was lingering, uh, litigation. Okay. So he was not pleased. He was, no, it was, it was <laughs> a very, yeah, her depiction basically focusing on, on, uh, on gang, uh, gangs of Jamaica yep. was what, you know, what was the, re- what was the, um, who, who was responsible for a lot of this violence going on, this gang violence? And it was no, it was kind of an open secret that uh, in the elections of the 70s into the 80s, when, it, when the, I went from the prime minister there, Michael Manley, to Edward Siaga, mm-hmm. that uh, each of those different parties would utilize gangs on the ground to ensure um, dominance of votes yeah. and support, yeah. and including arming them. Yeah. And that was for a small island. That's uh, that's that's a lot of violence for a small island. Sure. And right around the time that I did that, 
that I did that um, essay, um, it was right around the time of uh, the fam- a raid that happened in a part of Jamaica called Tivoli Gardens, mm-hmm. which was a housing project. And um, basically, with the police raptor guy named uh, Christopher Dudus Coke, mm-hmm. who was a was a big um, gang drug trafficker down there. And so it was in. It was a worldwide story um, that they had gone in and had the shootout to get to get a hold of him. He was eventually um, captured, and I believe uh, transferred to America. I, I, I think that's the, that was the end game there. But nevertheless, I it was it was big. It was a story at the time. So yeah. I got a chance to write this, and then I got a chance to interview Lori, and mm-hmm. she she was very forthright with her experiences down there and writing the book. Yeah. And then during the course of the interview, I wanted it to, to steer it back toward film to make it interesting for um, for the readers. So I talked to about the, her thoughts on the harder they come and Jimmy mm-hmm. Cliff, mm-hmm. and she turned out she had met Jimmy Cliff okay. and had a party at, at Harvard, and and it was it was really interesting and it, it gave me a chance to put in my own mind that these interviews didn't have to strictly be about film, but they could be about the creative process yeah. and 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 kind of bleed out into culture yep. and that's that's an important part of films on location too um, yeah. the idea of what they say about that place absolutely and that goes back to one more part that, that went into the creation of Cameron the Sun which was a documentary called Los Angeles plays it so yeah yeah now I'd seen that that's a film obviously by Tom, by Tom Anderson it's a it's a video essay and it's about how um, Film, feature films about Los Angeles have made people think about that city subsequently. Yep. And it's very wide ranging. It's, I believe, three hours, the, the yeah. restored cut. And it's worth seeing all three hours. I mean, that's where you got the name, Camera in the Sun, right? Isn't it, that it's, kind it, of where you, I mean, it, let's start there. Let's start. The, it, the most recent one uh, we published was uh, the eighth installment of the series, it was the essayist about Tom Anderson. That's right. And so he. Um, and that's what's so fun about these two. It's 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 we were we were talking about how location inspires you in these interviews. I mean, and specifically L.A., you learn so much about the city. And, and uh, you know, in this one, you learn they talk about the Bradbury Building, the uh, is it the Stall House? Stall House. Stall yeah. House. Yeah, which is it's. Uh, yeah, I'm sure anyone listening, you've you've seen it in films. It's it's, yeah. it's something. It's like right uh, when I was reading the article, I, I googled it right away. I'm like, oh yes, of course. Um, but, um, I mean, Anderson inspired you a great deal, didn't he? Absolutely. Seeing that film was um, kind of revelatory. Yeah. I've, it really it really put my thought, it really opened my eyes to that uh, phenomena of, of, you, you of des- location. You described it as less a documentary than a three-hour poetic commentary on a chameleon celluloid city. That's, That's right. awesome. That's, I love that. That's, that was... I tried to do right by the poetry of yeah. of, of that phrase because mm-hmm. it, it is the way. I think the fact that that uh, he was coming at it, uh, Tom Tom Anderson was coming at it as as an essayist first, yeah. with with clips serving the writing, mm-hmm. and because of that, I think the his turns of phrase and his and the pacing of it and getting Enka King to do the deadpan the narration. Uh, narration yeah. It really is. There is there is a poetry to it, and to see it, to read the words on page, mm-hmm. are it's that's that's powerful enough. But to see them coupled with those those images yeah. is the way it's seen. It's something yeah. you would go to um, MoMA to see and mm-hmm. like sit sit there and watch watch it because yeah. it's told at, at an appropriately leisurely pace. Mm-hmm. But it, it it's it's something where. I, th- I think that's 
something that feature films certainly have lost, where it seems like there's a frenetic need to um, uh, keep the story going at a certain pace. You yeah. can't. You can't linger. Yeah, yeah. And that's a that's a uh, Yeah, I like when something takes its time and let's let let's breathe and yeah. Intentionally yeah. too. I yeah, think he absolutely. says that, he says at the head of that that film what what happens instead of letting films lead us along if yeah. we consciously uh, uh reverse that and try and try to pay attention to things that the films don't necessarily want us to see oh, or don't yeah. want us to notice yeah. and locations specifically. Yep. And what that says about stuff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The most powerful part of that, um, and there are many powerful things uh, about that, but there are two particularly, and I, t- I touch on them in, in the um, Across the Margin the piece, essay, yeah. is that, uh, first of all, is the fate of Bunker Hill. Mm-hmm. And as a neighborhood that was basically um, uh, subject to what Anderson calls slum clearance, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's something that many cities have, have uh, been a part of. I went to school in Pittsburgh, and anyone who's in the Pittsburgh area knows the fate. I went. To, I went to the University of Pittsburgh. I'm yeah. not. I, I have not maintained my uh, my sports loyalties <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. pretty much. But yeah, uh, yeah Pitt Panthers. Yep. Um, but anyone who lives in that city knows the um, the fate of the Hill District yeah. in the 1960s. They're doing a lot of filming there now. They are. And, and, and my very first interview for Camera in the Sun was mm-hmm. with a guy named Charlie Humphrey, okay. who was the then head of Pittsburgh filmmakers. Mm. Um, and I learned a lot from that interview. Oh, wow. That was the first one. Yeah. That was the very first well, one. I didn't, and I, I, I learned stuff from that interview <laughs> because I basically said, gave, I emailed him questions and asked him if he could email me answers. Okay. And it was not, uh, this, what I got back was not as, was not as, as, uh, as productive as I would have liked. Sure. Yeah. And so I quickly learned More from that, and I so. went to I went to a direct interview yep. a process. And Absolutely. my second interview was with a guy named David Schoner, who still works for New Jersey uh, Film and Television mm. Commission. Um, is gr- is great and really encouraging um, and help uh, a real good tool for for filmmakers who are looking to shoot on location in New, in New Jersey, which just under um, uh, new governor Phil Murphy restored um, uh, a better uh, tax incentive for oh, the cool. state. Um, so that's. That's something that has again played uh, played into just where people are filming yeah. again and again. Yeah, absolutely, I do want to say real quick. Coupled with that, the third and fourth interviews that I did for Camera in the Sun play into that tax incentive uh, part. Um, I the third interview I believe I did uh, was with a guy named Chad Burris, who was um, a producer in Oklahoma, mm-hmm. trying to get people to go to film in that yeah. state. Which was stripped of its of its tax incentive, and mm-hmm. when that happened, things get. I mean, it's 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 tough to to lure in that work. Absolutely, yeah, because they can go other places where they have that, of course. Yeah. At the time, the big popular one was Louisiana. Oh, okay. Um, and which which had drawn a lot. Obviously, subsequently, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, the Walking Dead is obviously a prime example. Yeah. Filming yeah, in around sure. Atlanta. Yep. Um, Another guy uh, who was a friend of his and who had he, uh, Chad had produced films for was a guy named Sterling Harjo, mm. another uh, Native American filmmaker um, who was who's uh, kind of a, um, a, a a fixture at uh, Sundance, and has had several of his films over there and is is part of a lot of the workshops that go on over mm-hmm. there. He's really really talented guy and has tried to continue to film in Oklahoma. Um, even though without without the different incentives and if you're an independent filmmaker, it's tough to, to make Absolutely. that make the numbers work on that. Mm-hmm. Talking to Anderson, something that Anderson mentioned uh, during mm-hmm. our interview was that 
what had changed in the 10 years since uh, Los Angeles Plays itself debuted in 2003 to when I talked to him in 2013 when the film got a re-release and it was uh, basically um, uh, kind of cleaned up and and extended and actually finally, actually finally released. It was Mm -hmm. for a long time because of rights issues with all the clips that he had. You can only see it at like festivals. It was part of his... This kind of interesting, yeah. dangerous film yeah, of yeah. some kind. Um, but but he Anderson mentions that in the ten years that a lot of the mid-level budget films in LA had gone away, and the mm. two that he that he pointed uh, that he used was uh, the Replacement Killers yeah. and Cobra in mm. the '80s, which were um, these these films which in theory could have been filmed anywhere, yeah. you know, and uh, if the money was right. But they happen to be in LA because the money was right yeah. at that time. Yeah. And that's the finances of those of those films uh, are a fascinating thing. That's that's a recurring theme to this day yeah. in terms of well, if you're not a blockbuster and if you're not a shoestring budget film, mm-hmm. where do you fall? Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a niche that um, say Netflix or or Hulu or HBO mm-hmm. have tried to fill. Now, obviously, this past week there've been there's been big news with HBO saying they're going to have to cut back. Oh, is that the deal? Yeah, or, yeah. or being told that they okay. have to cut, cut back um, in terms That's a of, shame. of you, just, their... like, you see Netflix budget <laughs> like each oh. year. It's just uh, it's insane. I don't know if that means with HBO if it's the actual budgets of the films or okay. the number of series. Oh, okay. Because yeah. they, they've, I mean, obviously they, uh, the cost-benefit of, of a show like, say, Game of Thrones yeah. where they're already um, planning um, spin-offs. Mm-hmm. Like, there's so much of that mythology, the prequel mythology yeah. that goes into that show that, that people will want more of Absolutely. it. A good example, though, of, of a show making a tough decision that's that's kind of a mid-level show is Better Call Saul. Mm. You know, it's it was a show that was built off of a, a runaway hit mm-hmm. of, of Breaking Bad, but if you watch that show, it's, you know, the, the set pieces... Are, are it's a lot more low key it's it a lot more writing driven yeah. it feels smaller yeah. and if that's what it takes to get that show on TV mm-hmm. and for AMC to say this is worth us using a slot for this show you know it's, that's great yeah. I, I think that's that's something that's the only thing that, that kind of worries me is about film and, and television storytelling are, are the numbers okay. and I think you know what gets sacrificed for those yeah. for those numbers now that could end up being a good thing where mm-hmm. it's like okay we're sacrificing the, the visuals for for a story yeah you know that's yeah. that's a very simplified absolutely ob- it could metric, reel things in but, a little bit it's, yeah but that's something that that was that, that struck me that was interesting to me about Tom Anderson yeah um, He's an interesting uh, character because... So the reason I wanted to end the Cross the Margin series with Tom Anderson was because even the, the post about him, I utilize other people I've interviewed's opinions of that film, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. or interactions about it. Specifically, the two that jumped out was Alison Martino, yep. of, uh, founder of yeah. Ooh, we also Los had Angeles. There was another piece about her as well. Yeah, that was one of the articles. Um, and very, they, very well received. She was, she was happy with the piece. She, oh, cool. She, she texted me uh, or or got that uh, makes me happy. With, yeah. with yeah. Instagram, cool. saying she was honored to to be uh, to be mentioned mm-hmm. again. It was great. She's really great. That's she's, so cool. She's um, she's a she's a let's real move, talent. Let's move to her because I mean. Um, which one was that? She is the collector. Is She's the collector. Yes. yes. And I, I love all the titles that we had. We had the poet, the cowboy, the collector, the necromancer. But she's the collector. Um, um, it, this was another one where we learned a lot about Los Angeles. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. She's she's um, 
kind of the linchpin for me of, of, of this series of, cause she touches on so many things, um, in, for, in a roundabout way, yeah. whether it's film, whether it's, it's, uh, architecture, mm-hmm. whether it's culture. And it just goes to, with her own biography. I mean, she's a lifelong resident there. Her father, um, Al Martino, longtime singer. He was in the Godfather. Yeah. He was the, he played, uh, Johnny Fontaine. He's Johnny yeah. Fontaine. In the Godfather. Yep. He's, uh, he's the reason for the horse's head in the bed. Yeah. <laughs> Indeed. And he's, He's an interesting cat in, in his own way because he, even as his his career went on, he would still book gigs up until his passing. Mm-hmm. And so he, for for his daughter, you know, there's a continual exposure to a certain era of Hollywood yep. that he came up with. These were her friends, you yep. know, like people that, that yeah, she interviewed her world. in that time. Yeah. yeah. So when it came to the series Mysteries and Scandals that she was a producer for, mm-hmm. that was her big break. Yep. She was a, essentially a receptionist at E! And was familiar and was was friends with with producers and one who who said, uh, you know, word on the street is that you are you know familiar and and uh, have a lot of knowledge about this stuff and um, these this era that we want to cover for this show. Would you be interested? She said, "Yes, I would." Absolutely. And she was probably I get the impression she was probably one of the most valuable assets for that show yep. because not only it's one thing to book. Um, a guest. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to, to establish a rapport with a guest of a certain age. And a lot of the people that they were talking to were elderly. A lot of the people they were talking to um, had fuzzy memories about stuff mm-hmm. and needed prompting. And mm-hmm. when you have someone with an encyclopedic knowledge, but also an interest in that era, she ended up being the person interviewing a lot of these these folks and getting them to say things and getting yeah. them to, to in soundbite form, no less. Oh, cool. Um, and including her own father yep. at, a, at a certain point. Yep. Um, the Mario Lanza episode, Mario Lanza being the um, singer that gave uh, that gave Al Martino his essentially his big break with mm. uh, with one of his songs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also gave her the opportunity to to give back to to people that her family was grateful to, which is it's an interesting show. I yeah. mean, one of, one of the things I bring up in the Across the Margin um, article about this is the impact of Kenneth Anger's book. Yeah, I was going to ask Babylon. you about Hollywood Babylon. I, I need to read this now. I had picked up a Hollywood Babylon at a used bookstore up in Maine mm-hmm. um, when I was doing uh, a, a, basically a, a college internship uh, pro- program at a place called National Theater Workshop for the mm-hmm. Handicapped in okay. Belfast, Maine back in cool. 2002. And I needed some reading material when I wasn't on the job, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And so I picked. I went to a used bookstore and I picked up two books. One was Hollywood, Hollywood Babylon by Kenneth Anger. Mm-hmm. And the other one was The Name of the Rose. Mm. And that both both of those would come into play. I had seen the, the Sean Connery uh, movie, The Name of the Rose. It's one of my favorite movies. Oh, yeah. Um, it's, it's, if you haven't seen it, do so. Yeah. It's um, shot on location, I believe, in Italy, mm-hmm. I want to say. But regardless, it's it's great. It's a mystery. He's basically uh, solving a murder mystery in a in a in a monastery yeah. uh, on the eve of, of a very important meeting between two groups of, of uh, Catholic Catholics, um, one of Pope delegation, mm-hmm. and they're arguing about did Jesus own the clothes that he wore? <laughs> Hard hitting stuff. <laughs> yeah. But there's a murder going on at the same time there, and it's it's a great it's a great. Uh, Great film, and it's made by yeah. the guy, the same guy who made this another great movie called Quest for Fire. Um, both of them have Ron Perlman in it, by the oh. way, who, who's a uh, great, great 
unsung actor. Yeah, he like really he, is. Um, he really finally got his time in Hellboy. the spotlight during um, Sons of Anarchy, yeah, yeah. And um, Hellboy. which was a really great one. Yeah. And Hellboy, yeah. yeah. Sons of Sons of, uh, sorry, Sons of Anarchy was actually filmed a lot around Lodi, California, mm-hmm. which is where my dad's from. Oh wow! And yeah. uh, if you've ever been out to that part of California, yeah, it's kind of stark. Yep, absolutely. It's, uh, it's very much a lot so. different from the coast for sure. But um, I, I, so I revolved between reading these two books during, yeah. during my, my time there and for the rest of the summer. Mm-hmm. And Hollywood, uh, sorry, Hollywood, Hollywood Babylon, Babylon is yeah. a fascinating book to yeah. read because it is so salacious. I was and say, it's got to be a scandalous read. It, yeah. Who knows how many, how many uh, like um, uh, lawsuits have been filed over this? Oh, thing. really? Because yeah. there's That's a lot of the stuff is just unproven. There's yeah. like there's photos from from like. Crashes that have happened, yeah. and and uh, like when bodies were discovered of oh, these God. of these deaths, they would you know, who knows how he called all these these photos, yeah. um, or with the publisher, I assume yeah, you know it yeah. helped on that thing. But yeah. but the thing that's important about that book is that it it pre it um, is an early indicator of the effectiveness of par- of pairing words with imagery yeah. in an engaging page turning way. It's essentially. Uh, you know, internet, uh, YouTube, whatever, whatever yeah. it, for its era. And yeah, it, it, pre-TMZ, a, yeah. It, there's a reason it defied, you know, defied whatever scandal. That it's probably propelled by the scandal sure. of it, too. But the way that book is constructed is genius. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it's, and its subject matter plays into that. Yeah. Even yeah. for, it, and it's continued, even, even now that it's decades later, people aren't as connected or remember even the names of actors from the 20s mm-hmm. to the 50s. Mm-hmm. But just the nature of the, of the, of the scandals and the way it's, yeah. it's written there too. Anger is interesting. I, like, I've, I was like, I want to find out more about this guy. Yeah. And then I've, I, you know, saw some of his films and yeah. saw some of his, uh, I heard some of his, his work, his um, music work. Yep. Fine. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's not never quite the compliment. Not fine great, but it's it's fine. It's, it's, but it's, it's uh, fine. but he, but that's that's a definite accomplishment that yeah. has very real influence. Sure. And sure. I and it really was something that, that Martino and her, and her um, team used. I mean, she says it outright that it was our Bible, and it, yep. it I believe yeah. it. Yeah. Um, it's it's really that that kind of scandal sheet. Kind of thing like taking for here in New York, people who read the post, like say page yeah. six, and yeah. trying to trans- translate thing. that. Yeah. At the same time, though, making it uh, making essentially that show was interesting to go back and see because they they are kind of they end up being kind of cultural documents. Yeah, yeah. Um, because of who they got to interview mm-hmm. and those memories before, and there was a lot of those folks passed very shortly after. Yeah. And again, that's that's why it comes back to trying to get them when he could. Mm-hmm. My closest brush with that during the time of Cameron and the Sun was the first interview post they did for Across the Margin called The Cowboy yep. with LQ Jones. LQ Jones. Let's do LQ. Let's do him. Yeah, uh, well, it, it, I'd like, I want to say before we go, like, we could do a podcast on each of these. So we're going to be just glancing over these um, artists and uh, filmmakers and storytellers. But, I mean, obviously you can go to Across the Margin and read more about these pieces. But... Uh, we are just touching on them. And, and you know, it's, it's, let's, let's, let's dive into LQ a little bit here. So L.Q. Jones, um, the first time I'd seen him on screen without realizing who he was, was uh, The Wild Bunch. I love Sam, that film. So Sam much. Peckinpah. Yep. He, he's, he uh, plays one of the gang pursuing mm-hmm. William Holden's gang. Um, and it's it's interesting that uh, he's one of these guys where it becomes very quickly, the only way to pursue these guys is to get as many degenerates who are willing to do anything it takes to take these guys down. 
as they followed them down into yeah. Mexico. And but it turns out Elkie had done a lot of um, had done several films. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't until with with Peck and Paw, and it wasn't until after I interviewed him that I realized just how many those were. And Definitely. he pops up again and again. Yeah. Um, I'd seen this. I'd seen the Wild Bunch in, uh, when I was a, when I was much younger. The other role that stood out for him before I knew who he was, if you ever, anyone's ever seen Casino, yeah. he's the one, he's the county commissioner, Pat Webb, who tries to shake down Robert De Niro. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically when um, Joe Bob Briggs uh, turns it turns out to be completely incompetent. Mm-hmm. I don't know if uh, that's that's his nephew. And if anyone has ever watched uh, another favorite show when I was uh, growing up on TNT, it was TNT's Monster Vision. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was hosted by Joe Bob Briggs mm-hmm. for a while. Great presenter. I think he's out of Texas. Um but a great, great representative film, especially drive-through film, mm. and he has a has a role of as an incompetent uh, local hire of the casino that that uh, De Niro has to hire for this casino, and then they get burned on several like uh, slot machines at once, and so he fires them. And so LQ rolls in as Pat Webb with his yep. with his cowboy boots and his hat. Yep. And you see this clash of cultures yeah. um, as they're they're trying to um, shake uh, as he tries to shake him down, and ends up being really the guy who takes. Takes down uh, De Niro. Yeah, it's a big, big piece for him, big moment for him. Absolutely. He's, I mean, he's not only an actor that kept continually showing up. I mean, I have to thank you because you steered me towards the film he made, A Boy and His Dog, with you know starring John Johnson. I absolutely love that. And then my co-editor Chris, when he saw this piece, and, and he, he started talking to me about it, he's like, and I'm like, I haven't seen it. He's like, you haven't seen. It. Like, he's like, get it. It's not on. I got it on Netflix, but it's not on. I just went back to watch it again. I think they just took it off Netflix, which is a shame. Yeah, because I wanted to point people there, but. What a cool film that is! Yeah, he it was part of something where he got to uh, a point in his career where he wanted to be he wanted to get into the the business of making movies, mm-hmm. and this was right around this was right after uh, I, b- I believe Wild Bunch is nineteen sixty nine. Yeah, I was and then, say, what and is that nineteen seventy nineteen seventy two or three? Yeah, yeah, or something yeah. Like that. It was 70s, yeah. But right during the the turn of those decades, uh, he and a, a friend actor friend of his. Um, I believe Archie Moore, mm. I want to say his name is, but the uh, they came they uh, had a production company which made about four films together, um, and one of them is, is there's a great horror film of, of the films they made called um, Come In Children, mm. and it's a small town where that's run where um, a bunch of old Satanists are stealing children so they can transfer their souls into their bodies. Oh damn. It's pretty. It's pretty dark. Yeah. It's, it's pretty. It's pretty. Uh, Sounds entertaining. Yeah. 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 Oh yeah. It's. But uh, A Boy and His Dog is the most famous one of these, yep. and um, it's one, the, the thing that also stands out about it is that it's an adaptation of a yeah. book by Harlan Ellison, yep. who just passed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was cool in the article seeing the, um, the, the play between um, Harlan and LQ. Uh, you know, about trying to get it made, right? Was yeah. that part of the... Harlan Ellison, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Ellison was famously curmudgeonly when it came to adaptations yes. of his work. He yep. wanted to have a hand in it. He was dissatisfied with everything. Because yep. even by then, you know, he had he had worked... He was already a big name in in sci-fi writing, mm-hmm. also television writing. I believe yeah. he wrote for Star Trek yeah, yeah, yeah. during the 60s yeah. and I stuff. I saw that when I was researching, yeah. And he uh, and LQ, again, two culture clashes mm-hmm. a little bit, you'd think. But I think the thing, I'd suspect the thing that made it work was that LQ was an utter professional. He, yeah. he was this, a working class, blue collar actor who had like done hundreds of episodes yeah. and stuff. This, and, and that was... 
I think that's that's what a lot. If you're a writer and you want someone to adapt your work, you want someone who's not just a pie in the sky. You want someone who's going to take this yeah. seriously and do a workmanlike that's job. That's Al Q, and he was he was pleased. He was pleased. He right? was he he was pleased with it. But the funny thing was, he still wasn't sure if, if Harlan was gonna was gonna be uh, was gonna like his oh, okay. his final yeah. his final uh, draft. And of course, mm-hmm. the, the the thing that. Uh, LQ goes through in our interview is is him trying to include Harlan in the process, in the process of, yep. and Harlan wanting to say no, nope, no, nope, mm-hmm. I don't want part of it. I don't want to do any of this stuff. Yeah. Now, like as from the writing to the shooting to yeah. the, the final editing, and then when he locked the print, when LQ locked the print, that was it. There was yep. no going back. Then Harlan said, oh, "I'd like to take a look at it." So they did a private screening. Mm-hmm. He said, "Well, it's going to be useless because it's not much we can change anyway." Yeah, yeah. Um, so they they did it and went it went well. Yeah. It's a very memorable way he describes that private screening uh-huh. and not knowing when when Harlan uh, charged up the aisle to him whether or not he was gonna it was but, gonna be yeah, a fight was or it was it, gonna yeah. be congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that was it was a, it was a good story and it was a good but it was a good rapport. And I, was, I think I say in the article that it's an important one between the writer and the filmmaker. Yeah. And when if you can have if you can have a uh, that kind of really hand in hand relationship and and Harlan subsequently was very important on on going into the the pitches mm-hmm. for that film to get money for a couple of additional reshoots yep. on stuff but to have that on your side um, is, is is a great asset and I think you've seen that again and again where especially on the independent filmmaking side where you had directors writers that have worked together yep. with each other on stuff also Larger budgeted films where, let's say, you have the director and the writer have such rapport that the writer is willing to step aside. Yes. And that's something that came into play with Hampton Fancher okay. with, uh, was, with Blade I was, Runner. I was going to... Amazing segue. You've done this before, I can tell. And I just, you know, I, I'm i so excited to tell you. This one was uh, entitled The Poet, Hampton uh, Fancher. This sounded like a fascinating interview with him kind of uh, pacing around the room. You got to go into his home. Yes. Um, he would say the unexpected often. Uh, tell us a little bit about Hampton. So Hampton uh, is, is in his career, uh, was not so dissimilar as an actor for the roles that he pursued that LQ did. Yeah. Um, television westerns were huge at the time in, mm-hmm. the, in the 1950s into the 60s. Hampton, who had grown up in L.A., but was very interested in dance, had run essentially left home as a teenager, caught a, caught a, a boat to Spain, studied flamenco, um, changed his name to Mario Montejo um, because he wanted a, a complete identity I shift. I need to talk to Hampton. Yeah. He came back, uh, decided that uh, he wanted to go into uh, film. Yeah. Or wanted to go and be an actor. And uh, so he uh, went into television roles. Mm-hmm. Um and I got a chance that this is where YouTube comes into play, where a lot of uploads of these old uh, television shows like The Rifleman mm-hmm. or or uh, Wagon Train mm-hmm. or um, all these different different ones have been up there. So I could I could look at IMDb, see the see the the, the episode that he was on, and say I'm going to take a I'll take a try, see if I can find this. Yeah. And very often I did, wow. and I found him. And with the other thing I should point out with Cameron the Sun. I was a big fan of reading the Onions and AV Club's interviews at the yeah. time. Um, they were the writers, the interviews they had there, and the subjects they were allowed they they could get at were were great. They were the best, and you, they would have these sprawling transcribed interviews. Mm-hmm. 
my one problem was, I don't know if I ever finished any of them, the oh, ones that I would see online, yeah. because I would just, you just see words and words and words, yeah. and it kind of tires you out a little bit. Sure. So I kind of took a carrot and stick approach to Camera in the Sun, where I included images yeah, sure. to keep people going. Yeah. This, this goes back to the power of uh, Hollywood Babylon yep. again, because what do you, what keeps people turning the page? Yeah. Uh, wanting to keep up with, with somebody's, yep. um, Makes somebody's interview. Rounds out the experience as well. Totally. Yeah. So with, with both LQ and Fancher, I went back and, and found... Uh, screen captures oh, of them cool. on these different television episodes and in LQ's case film ep- film episodes yeah. and included them in the interview to with a little capture saying what they were what year they were from and it gave you yeah. an evolving kind of pairing of that so he he did this for a while and he was uh, into the 60s he married uh, Sue Lyon who mm-hmm. was uh, Lolita in, in, in Kubrick's oh, wow. Lolita yep um, had a very tumultuous marriage with her for a yeah. couple of years, I believe. Uh, and then uh, had, had this, I believe, a couple of film roles, small independent mm-hmm. stuff. And then by the 70s, he was kind of done with that. Um, and he was, he, if anybody wants to find out, first of all, more about Bancher's life, there's a great um, independent documentary uh, about him called Escapes mm-hmm. that came out last year. That's a really great thing about his life. Um, in the 70s, he decided that he wanted to get into film producing mm. and make make the films of a spe- specifically based on writers he was interested in. Mm. He was always interested in poetry, hence the name of, of the, yeah. the Across the, the Margin the Post. Yep. And so the three that he had in mind that he wanted to do were Charles Bukowski, um, William Burroughs, and Philip K. Dick. Yes. He... W- he wanted to do uh, so. He subsequently actually adapted. Uh, sorry. So subsequently, he actually bought the rights to three of their works, and the one that came through was Philip K. Dick's. Yep. And it's worth noting how he got the money to do this. He had a friend of his who was, I believe, the creator of uh, Flipper, the oh, wow. uh, the, the show yeah. Flipper, yeah. who uh, Brian Kelly, I think, is okay. the name who gave him some money and he said, look, I believe in you. I know that you're the kind of guy who needs to do this kind of thing. I'm going to give you some money. Yeah. And I want you to do what you want with it, but pursue this because he probably was like, I don't, I just, I just, I want this to get it off your soul to do it. It's like, great, I'm going to do this. Mm-hmm. And Hampton basically, uh, told me that when he was he was doing this he was like great i mean if if i pursue this with writers wow that's half the half of it right there you know i can work with these guys Mm -hmm. and he tried working with them Mm. to and it didn't go so well to write screen rays (laughs) to very i mean can you imagine working with trying to get charles bukowski to write a screenplay (laughs) burroughs probably would probably be the most effective sure i I assume i um just even because of the the, his book nature and Mm. that's saying something for philip k dick yep Phil K. Dick, um, I believe he was the first one to actually successfully option to work from him. I could yeah. be wrong about Did that. Did you um, listen to my podcast with uh, Kalen Egan, who works for Electric uh, Shepherd Productions, who's actually, right now, they're taking, they kind of have all of Phil K. Dick's work, and they're the ones who are pushing it out, making The Man in the High Castle, yeah. making um, Electric, Electric Dreams. Dreams. Yeah, that's yeah. what we talked about on that. You should check it out. He's, I will it, check that out. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah, I've, that's that's great that he's getting he's getting some more burn. It's oh, amazing yeah. how, burn. How, yep. po- how posthumously his works, yeah. Phil K. Dick's works, have been adapted yep. in, in all kinds of really effective ways. Yep. In different ways, yeah. but the the progenitor of a lot of this is Hampton Fancher. Sure, um, sure. he was the one who who um, eventually adapted it and worked to uh, um, 
get it made into yeah. Blade Runner, which with Ridley, Ridley Scott came onto it. Uh-huh. And anybody who wants to see that process come in, uh, play it out, there's a an excellent documentary called Dangerous Days. Oh, I heard it's great. Yeah. It's on the, it's, that was made for the Blu-ray release mm-hmm. of um, Blade Runner, the final cut. Yep. And he's in that, and he tells about the whole backstory of it. And in fact, when I was uh, on Instagram, the photo uh, for promoting the, the Across the Margin interview with uh, Tom Anderson, where uh-huh. he's talking about the use of the Bradley building in, uh, sorry, the use of the Bradbury building. Bradbury, Bradbury. Yep. In, yep. In, uh, yep. in, Blade Runner. Yeah. Um, the center uh, of it is a uh, concept sketch mm-hmm. for, uh, that I did a screen cap of of a little um, hatted man coming out of the Bradbury Building. Mm-hmm. That was supposed to be Dustin Hoffman, who was their initial idea for playing Deckard. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, before Harrison Ford, yeah. and and then subsequently they used it. And the interesting thing about the Bradbury Building too, just when they were filming that film, was that they only had access to that film at night. And oh. so they had to clean up all of that water and and shadowy yeah. grit and grime, and I think a lot of that was accomplished with cork. Okay, um, where they would they would ground up cork to look like dirt and other stuff, and then they would put other stuff. And the That's shadows are your friends at yeah. that point because sure. it kind of lets the mind imagine what that dirt is. But yeah. they would, every night they would have to go in and clean it up for business the next day. Wow, it's still an active office. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. So, but but they wanted, but but Ridley Scott wanted that location, yep. even though Fancher thought it had been played out. It had become because it was so yeah, so it had been used, used yeah. and, and not in a really creative way mm-hmm, either. Mm-hmm. And I I like that, and yeah. and and Fancher owns that. That yeah. he's like, yep, I was wrong. Yeah, I was wrong. Yeah, totally. And that's that's the cool thing about interviewing. Absolutely, that he will own his faults. Yeah, and that's something that's uh, I've tried. I've, those are the most rewarding interviews across, and even including these eight that I did for Across the Margin. Yeah. There are people that when I when I interview them, they whether things went right or went wrong, they the way they describe it, uh, describe things are in a very engaging way. And yeah. I got lucky. Yeah. That. Um, yeah, that's why they that's just all happen to be talking well. about Los sure. Angeles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, that's the thing there too. And, and Fancher, I do want to say one last thing about Please. Fancher, which is He's like such a fascinating person. Yeah, his apartment. The fact that he was a subject who invited me into his mm. apartment for these long interviews. The first one I did for Camera in the Sun. Mm-hmm. Second one I did for uh, a pot podcast slash radio um, show that I had for 13 episodes on Radio Free Brooklyn called Talking Paper. Mm-hmm. And I basically set up at, at his desk while he was looking at his computer for, for notes on stuff. And yeah. we spent the first half of the interview talking about his favorite poets mm. and why, how he got into poetry and, and writing his thoughts. And the second half of the interview was actually reading some of his own work, which no one ever asks him to do. Yeah. So he had short stories, he had poetry, uh, and he just read it out. And that was, awesome. that was great. That's and cool. When I first interviewed him, he was in editing for a book called his first book, essentially, mm-hmm. called, of short stories. It was called "The um, Shape of the Final Dog," mm. and there's a story in that which is the, which is called "Shape of the Final Dog," mm-hmm. which is takes place uh, in the world of Blade Runner. In fact, it's an excised scene from his original script called that nicknamed uh, the Soup Scene. Oh, damn! And it's one where. Uh, a guy got a Blade Runner essentially mm-hmm. goes mm-hmm. out to um, find and execute a replicant, and as he's out there, there he comes across a dog that's that's that the replicant keeps, and mm-hmm. it's on this this windswept farm. And if any of this kind of sounds familiar, it's because it appears in the opening of Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Yeah, and that was I suspect an inspiration for them returning to Hampton, Ridley Scott as producer, I believe, um, and saying. Let's let's try this again. Yep. Because the initial Blade Runner, Hampton had gone through as, and this plays out really um, 
really well in the documentary Dangerous Days of many, many rounds of scripts going back between him and Scott and and the other production team to the point where Hampton burned out and basically had to take a leave and passed off his duties as screenwriter Mm. to David Peoples Mm. and who picked up on on that and they, they... when that that's who finished the film, even though Hampton retains an executive producer credit on the film and is essentially considered the spiritual father of that yeah, film. Yeah. Um, to the point where it's it's a very unusual thing that a guy in his seventies is asked back to be at this point co screenwriter with Michael Green yeah. of that film years mm-hmm. later when mm-hmm. he hasn't subsequently done between that that time, you'd think like, well, what has he done since then? Well, it turns nice. out he's directed a couple oh, of films. Okay. One of them he's very proud, uh, several that he's done, but one of them that he's very proud of is called The Minus Man. Uh, Owen Wilson, right? Yes. Yes. Yep. And uh, that's a, it's about a cross-country kind of serial killer, mm-hmm. who, and it's based on a book that, um, that Hampton read a review for, cut out the review. <laughs> kept it in his pocket for a couple of years and then finally That's when he so had the cool. opportunity to make a movie yeah. reached out to the author and said yeah. hey I want to work with you on this and it's, it was the old the old rapport again yeah. coming up that he had done 20 years earlier totally. and it's and it, if you watch the film it's it's good yeah. it's for it's a great it's a it's a great kind of uh, psychological thriller mm. in its own in its own right yep. and um, but by the t- you know even those opportunities had kind of gone away mm. after a while. So when I, he, the great thing about Hampton is that he's a guy who's like, he gets, he's like, I want to, I want to try something new now. I want to try to do this. I want to pursue this. And now I want to go, I want to write, write a book of short stories. Let's do that. Um, and he's become a great, but more than anything else, he's a great friend to filmmakers. He's always mm. up for a conversation mm-hmm. to talk about stuff. Yep. Very approachable. Um, and I'm I'm glad that even that at his age they gave him another shot to be yep. the screenwriter on a film like this and a film that's that's um, critically lauded. Yeah, and um, I, it's amazing. I wish it had done a little bit better to uh, so we get another to, to get a to get the <laughs> sequel that I'm, was kind I'm of set up. Super for. bummed out about that. Yeah, uh, I'm still hoping that changed. Um, let's keep rolling because. Sure. The fourth one we did, the Necromancer. This is William. Uh, is it Lustig? William Lustig. Yes. Well, Lustig is is a is a fascinating case of a guy who has completely transformed his identity within the filmmaking community, from director, writer, producer to what may very well be his most valuable service, which which is distributor. Distribution. Um, Blue Underground. Blue Underground out of L.A. Um, from its very conception was was basically. Uh, in Lustig's own words, they wanted to be a, another Criterion collection mm-hmm. of a certain type of film of whether you've, you're saying um, uh, films that are, are grindhouse or mm-hmm. giallo kind of Italian horror films mm-hmm. or these other kind of independent, whether it's slasher or or, or low budget or action action yeah. films from the 60s to the 80s yeah they, they had their 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 own their this range of films that were, that were made in a certain way a certain style yeah. that that it influenced him mm-hmm. and his collaborators um during that time and of which his own films are kind of yeah. part of that Mani- um, Mani- what, so maniac cop maniac yep his, maniac his, cop his first his first big one was maniac mm-hmm. um, oh maniac okay. which was uh joe spinell mm-hmm. plays uh as again a serial killer uh, roaming around new york and that, that was very much influenced by the son of sam murders yeah. um and is still to this day like a very uh, it is an influential film and they you go to any film class there's and that has a, a time um that touches on horror or especially modern horror right. it's it's one that will get picked up because it's um 
it's a great on location shoestring not yeah I guess it would be considered shoestring budget film but it's um you know even at that time it it allowed uh him to trans Bill Lustig to transfer from what he had started I believe with a couple of porno like adult films mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. then this was first make kind of mainstream film yep. and then kept going into the 80s with a couple of a couple of more film uh, films and while also contributing to the productions of famous directors uh, Italian directors that he was into as well so yep. I mean like this was something where a guy was he was setting himself up for a later career because of the connections of the friends that he was making in the industry mm-hmm. maniac cops uh, uh, one two and three are probably his most famous works um, just because that he got a chance to um, those were, I've, at least I believe Maniac Cop 1 was in theaters. Maniac Cop 2, I think, was was direct to video. Okay. Uh, only in the U.S. and then in theaters everywhere else. Um, but that was something where he got a chance uh, to um, collaborate with another guy that I interviewed, uh, Mr. Cohen. Mm. And uh, Larry Cohen... The it, collaborator. The collaborator. Yep. And before I head over to him, though, I do sure. want to finish up this, is that uh, because... Uh, in the later 90s, uh, uh, Lustig transferred over to working with a outfit called Anchor Bay, which would uh, release, re-release uh, films on, I guess, DVD at that time, and now what has become, in Blue Underground's case, uh, uh, Blu-ray. Mm. And uh, Anchor Bay kind of went bust, but uh, in the early 2000s, I believe it was, and but uh, Lustig still had, you know, he still had all his connections. He had he had the line on on production. He had all this stuff. So he was like, you know what? I'm going to continue with this on my own my own terms. I'm going to do this Blue Underground thing. And hundreds of films later, they're still doing it. Yeah, and uh, in awesome. a very great way because every one of those films um, that, that that come out. The uh, impetus uh, on Blue Underground's uh, side is, yes, we want to clean up the film to make it look as good as it can, but we also want those extras because it is harder than ever to convince people to buy a tactile DVD slash Mm Blu-ray to to keep and to watch unless, like, what's in it for me? Well, that's, uh, yeah, there's commentary tracks. There's also interviews. Mm -hmm. There's special edition features and things like that. He's very much like Martino, though, is, is doing a service where... That era of 60s to 80s, yeah. those people who are filmmakers yeah. or writers are passing yeah. away. Absolutely. So it's good to get them on the record with somebody who Crucial. cares about, yep. about the, who, is, who they know they're talking to somebody whose research yep. is part of that. So I've, I've got a lot of affection for um, what, what Bill Lustig is doing because yep. he's, uh, he's transcended and expanded mm-hmm. his, his initial uh, um, relationship with films to be part of the preservation effort. Yeah. And that's a huge plus because as much as great as the Criterion Collection is, mm-hmm. there have to be more of yeah. those of those kind of for collections. Different out genres there. And for Absolutely, different it really is important. And, yeah. and to that that end, one of the things that they've done is they did a collection of uh, Larry something called the Larry Cohen Collection, mm-hmm. where they went back and did some of his films. Yeah. Now, to try to name all the films that Larry that Larry Cohen has done, yeah. um, who I who I did as a part for the Across the Margin, yeah, the, the uh, seventh installment. Yep called The Collaborator. Yep. And th- that's a really great point because in order to get these different films across multiple genres mm-hmm. made, you have got to be able to work with a lot of different people to yep. get this stuff done. Yep. And yeah, it's um, such a, that filmmaking is so crazy like that. It's such a collaborative effort. And, totally. you know, it's a piece of art, but it's, I mean, it's got so many moving pieces, so it's just remarkable. Especially if you're in the industry 
and you're on you're on a ladder and you're like okay I want to move up here let's say I start out mm-hmm. as, as a production assistant mm-hmm. now mm-hmm. I want to I, I make friends with with somebody who gives me a shot as, as a writer yeah. on a film from a writer going on to say oh I can work on a, on a series as part of a staff well I yeah. do the staff now I'm like oh okay oh, okay now okay now okay now I can now I can I have the opportunity to be a writer on a film that was the Larry Cohen approach to uh, throughout the 60s being a writer working up into the into the dawn of the 70s saying okay it's time I'm, I know I'm good as a writer I know I've, I've got I've got my I've got a solid position here but I I know that for my career and my own sanity and and to, to get this creativity out that I have I'm going to need to take it further. I want to make a film. And yeah. it just so happens that Sammy Davis Jr.'s people yeah. wanted to make, uh, wanted to have him and have a role for him. And um, it happened that uh, they worked with Larry Cohen and it was yeah. going to be a remake of uh, on something that he came up with was the um, Little Caesar, a remake of Little Caesar with uh, Edward G. Robinson. Yes. And which was a, a gangster piece from the 30s, mm-hmm. I think. And uh, subsequently it didn't happen yep. because uh, they it just it, they couldn't work it out. But but here we had this, this script. He said, well, screw it. I'm going to make it. turns out he had the opportunity to make it. So he, yeah. uh, he cast around and went with a very different person for that role than it was intended for. Instead of having a little guy, went the opposite. Big guy, yeah. And, Fred Williamson. And he went with Fred Williamson, yeah. who was another guy who was looking to expand his career. He had been mm-hmm. a football player, but what's your post-football life? He was, yeah. he was a charismatic. He came out of that that time in the league, thankfully, without uh, any kind of debilitating sure. um, injuries. And, and he was a guy that oozed charisma. Mm-hmm. And in retrospect, if you look at, at Fred Williamson's work during the 70s into the 80s, a great great leading man classic leading man actor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. interestingly because films were changing in the 70s for the types of leading men who were who were marketable or bankable at yeah, that time you yeah. have all of a sudden Al Pacino um, Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. Dustin Hoffman mm-hmm. um, De Niro. and De Niro yeah. all four of them kind of non-traditional bankable stars yeah. but if and, uh, if anybody you know looks back at that era there's a great book Called um, Easy Riders and Raging Bulls, mm. which is uh, phenomenal. Actually, it's if you ever get a chance to read a, read a book about that that era, you won't be sorry. It, it tracks really between the era of those two films and, and the auteur era yeah. of the nineteen seventies and its downfall. Um, but how all these guys knew each other yeah. and and really reach retook the the industry yep. and were given the opportunity to because tentpole movies. Had had lost film audiences. Mm-hmm, they had mm-hmm. lost it. One of the parts that was co- that was parallel to this point, though, of, the, of this time frame, was black exploitation yeah. and black audiences yeah. who had not been catered to. Mm-hmm. And it didn't matter to them if if they who, what a classic leading man was, as long as they had the film going their way. And that was a great thing for Williamson to fill a great niche. Is yeah. that I think he said this in multiple documentaries. I get the girl and I don't get killed. That's my two <laughs> rules for if I'm going to be in your film. And it worked. And he had a whole. <laughs> that was those were his rules. Yeah. For real? That's yeah. awesome. And he he. So the big ones. Over that. The big ones would be Black Caesar and um, Hell. Um, Hell up in Harlem. Hell up in Harlem. Yeah. 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 Those yeah. were those were. Um, the, those two films were filmed in the same year. Yep. Um, they were Cohen's uh, second and third films, mm. and he uh, did it 
extremely guerrilla style. Yeah. Both well, of those that's, films. That's, you, got, you guys got to check out the uh, the article. There's a great anecdote about him working with the locals in Harlem and just it's it's that was that's just, there's so many within all these interviews. There's so many little nuggets of information and and you were giving props to um, Lustig as like kind of you know keeping uh, some of these stories alive. That's what Christian. You're doing the same thing too, which is awesome and and, and something I really. Respect. We have to touch on two more before we. Uh, I, and like I said, I hate rolling through these at this at this pace. But the articles do exist. I hope this uh, does entice people to learn more about these amazing people. Um, Me too. The, yeah, absolutely. Number uh, the fifth one we did was the. We we're kind of doing them all out of order, and who cares? Yeah, no problem. The chronicler uh, Penelope Spheris. Am I saying that right? Yes, you are. She uh, she is most known, I would say, to most people as the director of Wayne's World, um, but. And the, the Little Rascals. And The Little Rascals. She did that as well. Yes, she um, did. But her rock and roll documentaries, I, I, I luckily, this is one of the ones I saw prior to, the, the decline of Western civilization. That's It spotlights L.A.'s thriving rock scene in the 80s. These are amazing. These are so cool. What, uh, tell us a little bit about Penelope, if you could. She's, uh, she's an, a very, very important, not just female filmmaker, mm-hmm. but documentarian in general. Yep. Uh, and I think that's the reason the first decline of Western civilization was inducted by the Library of Congress into their... That's so um, cool. For, for you know, preservation. Yep. The reason being that that she came as a filmmaker at the front of, of a lot of stuff that would, um, that would become industry standard um, in terms of filmmaking. Um, the, her rock and reel company uh, did a lot of uh, music showcases in the 70s. Mm. That was the pro. That was that basically um, uh, was was the beginnings of the music video. Yeah, I was gonna say music video pioneer, and sure. a lot of them that that appeared in the early days of MTV when they were strapped for content. Mm-hmm. They were trying to do a twenty four hour, yeah, twenty four hour music video station, and that means during there, there's there's like the prime hours, and then there's the down hours. Yeah, yeah. And how do you do that do without? Without you know doing the same videos mm-hmm. again and again, I give uh, by the way I give MTV a lot of credit for for that. Um, they and and HBO were up against the same thing yep. early in their in, yeah. early in their days, and they they, they made, made it work. through it made it work because they waited for the industry to catch up to them. Yeah. but the people that were supplying the specifically MTV with content were people that had been doing the same things that uh, Penelope, Penelope Spears had been doing, yeah. or were in this, that came after her. She mm-hmm. was very early on in yep. this in this this side in of this it. realm, yeah, sure. And what that allowed her to do by by doing musical showcases of all these different uh, acts, even ones and this is an important note mm-hmm. that she wasn't into. Mm. Because she, you're getting paid for this, you're gonna see a lot of bands that you wouldn't otherwise yeah. see. Yeah. And that's how she got into punk. This was not something that she was Oh she was not into. she was not a punk rocker, okay. No, she more came up classic yeah, rocker. Yeah, well, yeah, I think yeah. She's she tells the story that she was more into uh, a band called the Weirdos. Yeah, um, th- there was another. Uh, she was into well, obviously because of her generation, she was a, she had seen Janis Joplin. Yeah, that's what's um, the fun in the article. Course. You know, you come upon names. I think a lot of uh, listeners, you know, Eric Clapton's brought up, Frank Zappa's brought up, Black Flag, even yeah. even NWA's brought up. You Absolutely, know, a lot of different, later on. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah, and that's and that's again that comes into play of of interest. So mm. very quickly, basically, what happened was. She uh, was exposed to this this punk rock um, uh, scene in LA that was small, but again, it was influential. Yeah, um, and decided that she was going to film it and and make a make a kind of a documentary project out of it, and mm-hmm. and that that includes the shows themselves 
and also uh, interviews with the bands and interviews with the fans. Mm. And one of the funny things that opens up the film is each of the bands reading the disclaimer saying that you will be filmed for this. <laughs> yeah, and it can oh, be cool. used in any way that, yeah, yeah, that you right. want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And utilizing that. So it feels, yeah. you know, it feels it, like, raw. It, it does. Yeah, it feels, it feels as cool as the music she's covering, yeah. At the same time, how do you follow that up? Do you want to repeat yourself again, even if you're trying to do a second, uh, you know, a second one? And what she decided to do was that uh, fast forward, uh, I think like seven years or so, she ends up doing uh, part two of the of the series mm-hmm. about the hair metal scene in, yep. in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. and that one is a different vibe. She's still doing the same basic parts. You see these people, uh, you see the bands in in local hair metal bands, yeah, not, not yeah. the big name ones. Yeah, yeah, not Poison, and, and, yeah. But you, but you have interviews with 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 bigger stars. So you mm-hmm. have, I think, Gene Simmons is in that. Oh, Paul Stanley yeah, gets yeah. gets interviewed. Mm-hmm. I think Ozzy is in it. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but I, but but they, you don't see them performing. You see them them commenting on what yeah. their the, the lifestyle that they lead, yep. and then you see the bands performing that aspire to that lifestyle, mm-hmm. and. There are infamous parts of it. There's like one of the, these guys who's who's just uh, drinking like Jack Daniels from the bottle in a, in a pool, just getting completely housed. Yeah. While his mother sits uh, poolside watching him uh, get just destroyed. And it was it was uh, yeah. And there's like a famous there's a famous hair metal club in Los Angeles where the guy where this old creepy guy's running. Um, uh, wet t-shirt contests and stuff, and you see how creepy this yeah. this, this like yeah. this the scene is, and um, and the there's a lot of depictions of debauchery and yeah. stuff. But yeah. it, it's a great it's a great uh, way not to repeat yourself, mm-hmm. and it's still it might actually be it's probably the one more people know about yeah. than the first one yeah. and have seen more mm-hmm. about. It's actually the one that's more ready for broadcast than the first yeah. one. The first one is good, but it's not as as polished, polished to its yeah. credit. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. The third one was made in the mid '90s and was more of a labor of love. Um, it was about the, and I don't think it got uh, as much of a wide uh, release as the other two. Mm. It was about the crust punk mm. um, um, uh, scene in Los Angeles, and these are kids who had come up homeless mm. um, and were into uh, different bands that that had similar experiences mm-hmm. and stuff. And um, uh, it's interesting too because it follows up on a on a feature film that Spears has made in the eighties called the uh, oh God, what what is it? Uh, I was gonna say the suburbs. Suburbia. Suburbia. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. She had made Suburbia, which was about squatter kids. It's kind of um, like it's, it reminds me of Kids, the film Kids. Absolutely. Yeah. This was this was a scripted piece of hers. Yeah. And very very much so, but drawn from research of kids absolutely. who were tra- living transient and on the edge lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and I believe uh, in the Orange County area, which yeah. is where she's originally from. Yep. Whereas if you look at Larry Clark's work, even though he is a he's a Midwesterner, um, he was enamored with the skating culture um, in Manhattan during that time in the '90s. Yep. Um, it's an interesting thing with with her because she she at that time that she made uh, the third decline. This is had had already made Wayne's World and Little Rascals yeah. and was well to do. One would think, um, and decided uh, to go this way with it. Now, in, in the interview with her, uh, she mentioned that she had been men- offered a lot of money multiple times to make a third decline or uh, about um, uh, hip-hop and turned it down yeah. uh, for two reasons. One, 
part of the deal would have been that she did not have ownership of the film. But that's something to note about these these three decline of Western civilization films is that this was her from from soup to nuts. Mm -hmm. She would basically had the rights to the film. She did all the research. Uh, she oversaw the filming of it. It was it was her baby. Um, at the same time, it's if you're working in that industry and in order to do the stuff that you want to do, it doesn't hurt to, to get paid well to do it to, to allow you to do these things. Mm-hmm. And the second reason that she didn't want to do that is that she didn't have the insight or the experience with with rap that she had, yep. even if it was, was by accident element, yeah. with punk or rock or sure. stuff like that. Mm-hmm. She didn't feel she could do it justice. Yeah. And I think that's to her credit, saying, you know, this is not in my realm. I can't I'm yeah. not pull it off. Yeah. Now she that was, but that was for the the what she had. She was also aware of her own legacy at that mm-hmm. point. And how do you? She didn't want to do that oh, for okay. a decline film. Okay. That doesn't mean she didn't want to do it for uh, for a regular documentary. Okay. And she did okay. a couple of interesting documentaries that, that touched on hip hop. One of them, um, I didn't know about this. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. She it was. Oh God, what was it? Uh, guy from. Um, Naughty by Nature. I think she followed around on, okay. on tour. Um, Stretch, but Stretch? No, no, it was uh, Uncle Luke. Uncle Luke, okay. Uh, yeah. I, I, I think that was that was mm-hmm. the guy that she, she tracked around and did. Yeah. did That's uh, cool. I'm going to look into that. As, I, yeah, I'm, I think it was, she was, she was like a hired gun for, for like uh, that, that kind of concert yep. uh, show. But the other one she did, which I encourage if you can ever find it, it's a really good one. I didn't know she did. It was called The Lifers. Mm. And she went, to, she went to a prison and talked to... Uh, inmates serving life in prison about their experiences and wow. um it was interesting it's what, what year are we talking we're talking we're talking 90s okay uh, so yeah this was stuff that she uh did at the time that was like she was still in the documentary realm still mm-hmm. up for doing like uh, stretching herself as, as documentarian yeah, even yeah. but i think that what's more important than anything else was the fact that as I said before, being aware of your legacy, yeah. and it's like, what are people down the line going to be paying attention to? Yeah. Well, I'm most she knew she was most associated with with um, the decline movies, films, and that was, yeah. and I think it's a good service to that that crust punk era of kids that that they got attention that they would not have otherwise gotten. Yeah. Um, and now that those films have been remastered and re-released, there's future generations that are get a chance to see that and be yeah. influenced by it. Absolutely. And experience, like, that was a moment in time in L.A., a really fascinating moment in time. So check out that article. Um, and I, like, I, I'm more compelled to learn more about Penelope, and I'm sure people will. Uh, finishing it off, and... I was so happy to see that you were writing about uh, Walter. It's the novelist, Walter Mosley. I, like you, came upon his uh, work through the film Devil in a Blue Dress, which I absolutely love. It's it's one of my favorites. Um, And, you know, what what can you tell me about uh, talking to the great Walter Mosley? So I reached out to Walter Mosley after... um a round of trying to make a list to myself of films that I liked and then who was associated with these films. Mm. And, and I would do this from time to time as just kind of like future plans. And I would send out a yep. batch of emails, see who responded. Yeah. And one of them was devil in the blue dress. Mm-hmm. I, and I was like, this is, uh, this is a guy I want to reach out to. And I went to use the, the IMDb, uh, uh, approach and at the time I don't think it, it returned me a direct email to him but he was working with somebody a, pro, a production company I think at the same time was, mm-hmm. that's who connected me with him oh, cool. anyway got in touch 
Uh, he turned out he was in New York at the time, so we met for coffee. Nice. And again, that was a very important uh, aspect to the interview because we got a chance, and it was hot. It was bloody hot mm-hmm. you know, the, when we met, so it was like definitely a nice coffee day. Yeah, yeah. And this place that's no longer around, uh, that's down in the West, uh, the West Village uh-huh. area there. Um, and he came. He, he was very. The cool thing was, I still remember this. He came. He came in with his with his uh, satchel and uh, sat down and it was just him no publicist and just went and yeah. he's he's a he's done many interviews he sat sat for many panels uh-huh. he has a very relaxed demeanor and rapport and but he makes all his words count as a as an as an interviewee real purposeful yeah yeah and i've come across this a couple of times with with people who who are used to doing not just interviews and talking but um but you know the, impactful and yeah. stuff and the, yeah. and the two that stand out from the camera and the sun era mm-hmm. are are basic there there are several like for instance lq is a great storyteller yeah. but you want the long form of them. So who yeah. can you, who, there are people, I've, and same with Joshua Sinclair mm-hmm. from the Shaka Zulu. Mm-hmm. There are others that I've talked to where even if it was more condensed, it would work okay. uh, because it, of, of what they say when they he's do. He's a prime example of that. I'll say three. There were three sure. three guys there. The first was was the most, probably the most important interview that I did for Camera of the Sun because it opened a lot of doors for me, which was Abel Ferreira. Mm. I got in touch oh, with well. I interviewed Abel Ferreira after getting in touch with him. There was a, I went on IMDb Pro. There was an email yeah. that it was like letters and numbers. Yeah. I was like, all right, I'll try this out. <laughs> sure enough, I, next day I got a call directly from Abel Ferreira. Wow. And so he was like, when do you want to do this? I yeah. said, I'll, we'll do it tomorrow. He's a cool guy, so right? I, he was a cool yeah, guy. We talked in the evening yeah. um, for all of 35 minutes. Mm. And it was at the time he was about to get a, um, a retrospective at Anthology Film Archives oh, of cool. the work that he had been doing in Italy. Mm. New Line Cinema had crashed at uh, at the basically the turn of the 21st century. He had worked, I believe, was he had worked with New Line or one of those other like mid level distributors. So, he, but the kind of films that he was making, he couldn't get made here. Yeah. So he went over to Italy mm-hmm. and started making films over there. Anthology was doing a retrospective of this. I got a chance to touch, to uh, call him, do an interview with him. Mm-hmm. Anthology, you know, helped promote it on social media. But having an Abel Ferreira in my intro in- yeah. emails to pitch Absolutely. these people, yeah. yeah. Helped me immensely. That's so cool. And one of the guys who thought it was really cool that I that, that led to this was a guy named Billy Corbin. Mm. Billy Corbin is uh, for those who have seen the great documentary Cocaine Cowboys. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, this is part of a, a filmmaking collective down in Miami called Raconteur, mm. who which and every every start of all their documentaries says Raconteur, mm-hmm. and then it has the definition one who tells stories yeah. well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and. It, Another side of what what uh, Rackendor had been part of was the Thirty for Thirty series, um, one called the U, which is oh, at yeah, the University yeah. of Miami, Absolutely. parts one, two, and I think yep. three yeah. as well. It was at the Great time, and may third, still be yeah. the most successful one before the I, OJ I would one. Say so, yeah, yeah. Um, and then they also did one called Broke, mm. which is about how how athletes Spend use their money, money yeah. and stuff. Mm-hmm. Billy though is a born like the the name of their company does him right. He's he and his. Uh, two friends who helped uh, the three of them who fa- founded this. He's kind of the face guy for okay. it, um, and he's um, the kind of guy. Whether it's short or short form or long form, can can really uh, really has a, telltale yeah. and yeah. is opinionated and is very knowledgeable oh, yeah. about yeah. stuff. Yeah. Um, and that's that was great. I t- again, it was a phone interview where where I was grateful for because yeah. I didn't need to have that face to face on him. That came into play again with Mosley because. Uh, He's another guy where he's not just a great writer, but he retains information and can uh, 
recite and bring it back back up during the course of a conversation really well. Wow. And, and our theme was Los Angeles, mm-hmm. so that's his home anyway. Sure. And he has a lot of a very uh, you know opinionated. Uh, he has a lot of opinions about it, just as Billy Corbin had a lot of opinions yeah. about Miami. Yeah. Um, and and its portrayal and its and if you follow Billy Corbin by the way on tw- on Instagram or mm-hmm. Twitter, you will know he is very very. Um, a big advocate for the city yeah. uh, and against a lot of corruption that it's yeah. that's continual there. And as far as Walter, one of the things that he does is is shine a light uh, in his films on the diversity that that wasn't being shown in a lot of L- L.A. films. The diversity and also the racial segregation. Yes. So a big part yeah. of A Devil in the Blue Dress is is the fact that Easy Rollins has is a rare black resident that owns his own yep. home yep. and he wants to keep that yeah. house. Yeah. And that's what drives that's right. the it's, it's his purpose. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who don't want him to have that, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of resentment there. And, and it's a great, it's a great film uh, on that level. And also, yeah, it's again, important in that way for sure. Another thing that comes into play with that film is the depiction of of in, of uh, family, mm-hmm. um, of the character that comes that comes into play. There's a character uh, called Mouse. Mm-hmm. who's coming up from Texas mm-hmm. to bail uh, Easy out of his problems, played by Don Cheadle. And um, and it, it's not just a family difference, but it's the difference between the uh, the style the style of pop um, the um, personality, shall we say, of residents from L.A. compared to um, to I believe Houston is where okay. it's supposed to be from from Texas. So it's it's an interesting like all these kind of suggestions, these subtleties mm-hmm. that, that come into play about about how you think of places or people from those mm-hmm. places mm-hmm. Um, are come into play there, and that's uh, something that we we talked about. Um, the great thing with with Mosley at the time, he, he had uh, done a couple things uh, with. Um, uh, television networks to cut to do made-for-TV movies. Mm. First, with HBO, uh, adapted his book uh, called uh, "Always Outnumbered, Always yeah. Outgunned." Is that with Fishburne? With Lawrence Fishburne. Yeah. Um, he did another one, I believe it was with Showtime, called "Was It Fearless Jones?" I forget. Mm. There was there was a th- there was another one that I didn't mention in in the article, Is but, it, but yeah. in our interview, Stuff I do. He okay. did. Yep. He did another made-for-TV movie that um, the, the, the with with that as well. And, and at the time we were talking, he was really pushing hard to try to. Uh, form a company that would handle um, adaptations of, oh. of his work. They wanted to, and I don't think this ultimately worked out, because mm-hmm. I think at the time they were even pitching it to networks of oh. doing a series, an Easy Rollins series. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't. It was. It was a big thing for for um, for Mosley at the time because he had gotten away from. Um, the, the Easy, Easy Rollins stories, series. Yeah. It had been five years, I believe, yeah. since his last one, and he was very aware as a writer that. He could very easily be defined by this character, and sure. nobody would want to read anything else that he yeah, had yeah. unless he didn't take active measures to, to do something that. different. Yeah. Subsequently, what that means is if you look at at, at Mosley's uh, you know book catalog, let's say from the last fifteen years, mm. you see him going in all kinds of interesting yeah. directions, specifically science fiction, and that includes short stories mm-hmm. and long form mm-hmm. stuff, um, political commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fiction form, uh, yeah. so socioeconomic political yeah. commentary on, on that stuff, and and uh, both in both uh, for set in Los Angeles and beyond, he's not even constrained by by one city. Yeah. Even no. though that was even a really powerful inspiration sure. yep. for him. However, that's just his writing side. Mm-hmm. One of the great things that I'm glad happened for him was that he got recruited, even though it wasn't his own projects, he got recruited into to television writing, specifically for Snowfall on FX. Yeah. 
He's part of the writers' room back. now. I love Snowfall. And yeah. there to have a guy like him in that writers' room bringing bringing his ideas to the table yeah. is a good one. And that's mm-hmm. one of the cool things in, in the Cross the Margin piece. I finish up an update on it. Yeah. Where he did an interview talking about what that's like for him mm-hmm. now. What's and he, he says it's not so much where like everybody goes off and writes their own thing. It's yep. a collaborative thing. But more than anything, we're focusing and saying, okay. What's next? Yep. How do yep. you look at this arc? Mm-hmm. How are we going to make this work together mm-hmm. and stuff? And especially with Snowfall, which is so focused on a time and a place, yeah. and there's so many details that you want to get right. Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting for uh, um, people, a series like that that just ended was The Americans. Yeah. And how do you get ni- early 1980s Washington, D.C. just yeah. right? Yep. You know, yeah, and yeah, that's sort of, sort of thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'm glad he's he's part of that, and it was good to talk to him about about his is approach. The, uh, is the Easy uh, series still going? He's still writing those, he isn't is. he? Yeah. yeah, he just uh, he just finished uh, one. I think it was last year, or the year yeah. before, uh, the yeah. most recent one. So it's such still cool, continuing. It's such a cool character, he's and such the a idea great that, writer. And, and that he that it's locked in time. Mm-hmm. He tries mm-hmm. to, whenever it, yeah. his newest book comes out, it's like okay, where how far down the line is Easy now? Like yep. what what year in LA is it? Yeah. What does that say about the culture and yeah. where? What um, how black people were treated in, yeah. in the city of their that experience, time. yeah. And he's a, and it's good because it mirrors his own his own era of life or yeah. people he grew up around, sure. which is it's, yeah, it's personal, very very personal. Yeah, yeah, awesome, man. We got them all. We got to them all. We got them all. And you know, like I said, we were just glancing over. I mean, they honestly each one could have been a podcast on its own, but uh, there's more at across the margin to dig into. Um, Christian, I can't like I said earlier. Thank you for the series for for talking to me today and for opening my eyes and I'm sure the listeners to a lot of them. I mean, the I, the list I made while we were talking of recommendations of books and films I need to see. It's 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 awesome. So. Thank you very much for coming here today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Michael, and thank you for the opportunity to write for Across the Margin and to be on Beyond the Margin. Yes. Um, it's been a real uh, real pleasure. And, and hopefully we'll do something again as well. Agreed. Yeah, I'd, I'd like that. And uh, thank you all for taking another trip with us Beyond the Margin. Osiris. This podcast is in the loop. The Legion of Osiris Podcasts. Osiris is creating a community that connects people like you with live experiences and podcasts about artists and topics you love. Get in the loop at OsirisPod.com.